God is good, amen. It's good to be back. It's good to be preaching once more the book of 1 Peter. I want to start this morning by saying that Happify.com, did you know there was a Happify.com? Happify.com lists seven science-backed reasons why we, as human beings, should do good in this life. Those reasons are doing good decreases stress, doing good increases life expectancy, doing good makes us feel better, doing good makes us happier at work, doing good promotes mental health, doing good leads to happiness, and doing good will motivate you to do it again. All of these reasons that Happify.com gives for doing good are backed by scientific studies. And I have no doubt that doing good is of great benefit to our physical and mental and emotional health. And I have no problem with these being motivators for us to do good. And to be honest with you, I'm not surprised that God has wired us to benefit from doing good. But I do struggle with a list like this because it doesn't have any perspective beyond self. What does it matter ultimately if I am good, if there's no perspective about me being good beyond me? We're continuing our study of 1 Peter this morning, looking at our living hope. And over the past several weeks, we've looked at this idea of being or doing good or having honorable conduct. In fact, the past several sermons have been driven by verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. In fact, I want to read that once more for you to set our context this morning. Peter writes in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Everything that follows from that for the past several Sundays has been driven by those two verses. It's really, if you think about it, that's a summary of the Christian life. Don't follow the passions of the flesh, but do conduct that is honorable. That's what we're striving for. We strive against sin and we strive to do what is right. And that's what's fueling what we've been talking about. For the past several weeks, um, Paul Roberts has preached on what it looks like to do good as it relates to submitting to government, servanthood, and marriage. Today, we're going to look at honorable conduct in situations where we suffer for doing what is right. We're going to see three things from the text this morning. The motivation for honorable conduct, the result of honorable conduct, and the example of honorable conduct. But first, I want to bring us back to a definition of that word honorable. Because if I'm going to be honest with you, when I hear the word honorable, what kind of pops in my mind is this picture of an English gentleman in the Victorian era just tipping his hat to passersby and giving his arm to old ladies to help cross the dirty streets. Is that what Peter means by honorable? 
I suppose you could say there's honorable conduct in that, but that word honorable there, it really means meeting high standards. Honorable is to meet high standards. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, whose standards are we wanting to meet? God's. That's honorable conduct. Let's see how Peter elaborates on this. He says in verse 8, finally. Now, don't think that he's about to wrap up the letter. He still has two and a half chapters to go. Rather, this finally really means to sum it up. In other words, to sum up the conversation we've been having about resisting our fleshly passions and pursuing honorable conduct, to sum up that, that's what he's going to talk about here. All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Finally, all of you, and you know from past weeks that Peter is addressing the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's addressing the Christians that have dispersed into those areas. So all of you Christians, all of you sojourners and exiles, all of you harvest decatur, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Peter gives us a list here of five qualities that Christians should have for honorable conduct. But I want to point something out this morning because in the English translation, it might be hard to miss this. It might be hard to catch this, rather. He lists these five qualities, but notice the quality in the middle. Brotherly love. We've talked about that. That's actually been a theme throughout 1 Peter. Brotherly love is in the middle of this list. That's significant because sometimes, and you might know this, sometimes the biblical writers would use a literary device called chiasm. And chiasm presents a list of ideas or a list of qualities or a list of events emphasizing something in the middle and then mirroring those same events in the following list. Let me show you here. He says, have unity of mind, line number one. Have sympathy, line number two. Brotherly love, in the middle. Then he says a tender heart, which really mirrors sympathy, and a humble mind, which really mirrors unity of mind. So you see, he's emphasizing brotherly love. Why is he emphasizing brotherly love? Because if we have brotherly love, these other qualities are going to flow out of that. The focus here in verse 8 is really love. It's brotherly love, and that makes sense because, after all, the second part of the great commandment is to love others, love God, love others. And out of that love will flow unity of mind, having the same thoughts as believers, sympathy, being understanding toward one another, a tender heart, which is really another way of saying sympathy, and a humble mind, which is really another way of saying unity of mind, because the opposite of a humble mind is a prideful mind, and nothing destroys unity like pride. So we focus on brotherly love. And then he develops that. What does that look like? Verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Now, our natural tendency when reviled is to revile in return. 
Our natural tendency when evil is done to us is to do evil in return. When I was a kid, my childhood was spent on military bases. My dad was uh, in the army. And believe it or not, military brats, as we were called, didn't always get along. There is a bit of irony there because our parents served in war together and their children fought on the playground. These fights, of course, nine times out of ten would start with words. You know, you're a loser. Oh, yeah, you're an idiot. And you're this and you're that. And then when you didn't know how to respond, you just said, yo, mama. <laughs> Word battles. And they would escalate. Somebody insults you, you have to insult them back, and of course you have to top what they said. So harsh words are met with harsher words. Insults are met with threats. It's our natural tendency to pay each other back. Return evil for evil, reviling for reviling. But as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to do the opposite, to bless. Now, that word blessed there in the Greek, it's a combination of two Greek words, one of which is logos, the word for word. So the meaning of to bless there is to speak well of or to praise. To bless someone is to praise them. Honorable conduct that flows from brotherly love blesses others. When we are reviled, we bless There's a scene in Shakespeare's Henry V where a character named Pistol, he's actually having a conversation with the king, but he doesn't know it's the king. The king's in disguise. And in this conversation, he does a rude gesture and he says something very rude to the king. And the king replies and says, I thank you. God be with you. And I love that. I love that response. That's the kind of response that I want to have when someone is rude to me. Thanks. Have a nice day. But you know, honorable conduct goes deeper than even our words. Yes, we are to bless, but that blessing goes deeper. Our honorable conduct should be deeper than that. We should love those who revile you. Serve those who revile you. Pray for those who revile you. And even be thankful for those who revile you. And that's at the heart of what Peter's saying here, to bless them. Now, why? Why in the world would I praise, would I thank, would I love, would I serve, would I bless someone who is treating me that way? The rest of verse 9. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. It's taken me a while to get to our first point, but here it is. The motivation for honorable conduct is blessing. The motivation for honorable conduct is blessing. I want to bless others in order to be blessed by the Lord. Now, you might stop and think for a second, that sounds selfish. I bless just to get blessed? That's self-serving. Not at all. Jesus himself said in Luke 6, 35, but love your enemies and do good 
and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. It's not a selfish motivation to bless in order to be blessed. It's how we look like Christ. We're going to see it's the example that Christ set for us. Bless in order to be blessed. What kind of blessing should I expect? If I'm blessing, what kind of blessing should I expect? Peter tells us that. He quotes Psalm 34 in verse 10 when he says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, a.k.a. the blessing, love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. If you want to love life and see good days, return evil for good. And if you think about it, that type of attitude is a blessing in itself. If I'm returning blessings for cursings, just having that attitude is a blessing in itself. I'm not holding on to anger. I'm not holding on to bitterness. I'm not holding on to fear. That is a blessing in itself. You know, someone once said that life is 20% what happens to you and 80% how you react. Now, whether or not those percentages are right, that's not the point. The point is if we strive for positive, loving responses toward those who are hateful and spiteful and filled with evil, the natural outcome is a blessed life. Spiritually, emotionally, mentally. The motivation for honorable conduct is blessing. Do you want to see your life blessed? Then bless others. And notice the specific way that Peter is encouraging to do this is through our words. Look back at verse 10 with me. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Psalm 141.3 reads, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over my lips. Think for a second the pain that you could be spared and, and spare others if you, your tongue spoke blessing instead of cursing. Let's just be honest. Everyone in this room is guilty of evil, reviling speech, and I don't say that to guilt trip you. I say that to point out how weak we are in this area. So ask yourself these questions. Where do you struggle with hateful speech? Where do you inflict pain instead of healing? Where do you tear down instead of build up? Maybe instead of where, I should say who. Who do you struggle with your speech? Who do you inflict pain instead of healing? Who do you tear down instead of build up? Who in your life brings out the worst from your words? Remember the movie, You've Got Mail? If you've seen the movie, you know that Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan play Joe Fox and Kathleen Kelly. And you know, if you've seen it, that Kathleen Kelly is not one who can generally insult people. She gets flustered during a conflict and she can't say the words she really wants to say to tell the person off until she meets Joe Fox. And there's just something about his character that brings out the worst from her words. In fact, at one point in the movie, she tells him, 
If I really knew you, you know what I'd find? Instead of a brain, a cash register. Instead of a heart, a bottom line. Ouch. Who brings out the worst in your words? You know, choosing to bless instead of reviling others is hard. In fact, the book of James tells us that no human being can tame the tongue. We might think it's hopeless. So what do we do? Go back with me and read verse 10. We're going to go all the way through verse 12 this time. Peter writes, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Do you see it there? The put off, put on language. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. The way that we speak what is right, the way that we bless instead of curse is we turn away from the evil. But you know, if you've been attending Harvest here, you know that turning away from evil and telling yourself I'm not gonna do what's wrong isn't enough. We have to put on the good. Seek peace and pursue it. We have to determine that I'm gonna be a person of peace and I'm gonna pursue that and I'm gonna let my words bless by being words of peace. But oh wait, there's more. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. Who are the righteous? The righteous are those who believe in Jesus. The righteous are not the perfect. The righteous are not the ones who have their life together. The righteous are the ones who fall seven times and get up because their eyes are on Jesus Christ and God is available and longing and willing to be our help. His eyes are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. So let me ask you this. Do you take advantage of God's availability? The way to bless instead of curse is, yes, to put off what's wrong, to put on what's right, and to trust in the strength and power of the Lord. And that's how we bless, and that will bring a blessing. So the motivation for honorable conduct is blessing. Secondly, the result of honorable conduct is a good testimony. The result of honorable conduct is a good testimony. Follow along as I read verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Honorable conduct results in a good testimony for our faith in Jesus Christ, specifically during times of suffering. Peter starts off by saying, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? In other words, if your conduct is honorable, people are generally going to like you. People are generally going to get along with you. And how are they supposed to accuse you if you're doing what's right? But you know, it's not always the case, is it? We as Christians, living the life that Jesus has called us to, let, to live, 
are sometimes the stench of death. So honorable conduct, though normally leads to no accusations, there are exceptions. So he says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. And again, we have this idea of receiving a blessing. If we suffer for righteousness sake, God will bless that. You have his favor. The idea of suffering here is not just, you know, general life suffering. You know, I'm suffering for Jesus because my car broke down. My pagan neighbor's car breaks down. Suffering here is being mistreated because of my honorable conduct that is a result of my faith in Jesus Christ. That's the kind of suffering we're talking here. And if you are mistreated because your conduct is driven by your faith in Christ, you have God's favor. Just picture him smiling at you. Peter writes, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now this here is an allusion to Isaiah 8.12 where God tells the prophet Isaiah, do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But Peter could also be drawing from his time with Jesus because in John 14, Jesus told them, let not your hearts be troubled. So Peter writes, have no fear of them. Who's the them? Peter's referring to Gentiles who are hostile to the faith. People who, even though our works are honorable, they seek to cause damage by discredit, slander, or even physical harm. He's using scripture to comfort and assure the believers, don't be afraid of them. Don't even be troubled, which that's the idea of the inward turmoil. When somebody says something evil to me, when somebody's treating me in a wrong way and I just stew over it, he's saying, don't be troubled. Instead, verse 15, but in your hearts, Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. That word for honor in verse 15, that can also mean sanctify or to treat as holy. Reverence Christ in your hearts. Do you see the contrast? Don't fear them fear Christ. Don't fear what they're saying. Don't fear what they're doing. Don't fear the possible outcomes because of the way they are maligning you. Fear Jesus Christ. Fear Jesus Christ and be ready to give a defense for your faith. Let me challenge you to have responses ready for those who question or even accuse you. The result of honorable conduct is a good testimony. You know, one day our family was pulling up at a window in Culver's and there was a lady there at the window that we recognized and she knew us by sight and she commented she just said, you guys are always so joyful. And at that moment, I think God gave me the words to say, I was able to say, our joy comes because we have hope in Jesus Christ. Now, that was all I was able to say because, you know, we're getting food and exchanging money and all that whole bit. People are piling up behind us. That's all I had time for. But God gave that moment to hopefully plant a seed, and I hope that seed grew. The result of honorable conduct is a good testimony, but you have to be prepared to make a defense. You have to be prepared to answer those who ask. I remember a few years ago, perhaps you remember too, that Pastor Tony challenged us to be able to share the gospel in 30 seconds. Do you remember that? 
I think one of the things that he said is, be, have the gospel reduced to a point where you could share it by, in the time it takes to get on and off an elevator. Did you practice that? Being prepared to make a defense simply means having reasons for why you believe what you believe. I don't want you to walk away from this thinking that you need to have detailed apologetic responses to every question that might come your way. Just be ready to share why you believe what you believe. Now, a good exercise in this is writing out your testimony. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about what he did for me. Even write it out on a single page so you can have it right there so you can summarize it quickly if you need to. Now, if you're inclined... And some of you are. If you're inclined to study apologetics and have extensive knowledge on how to defend the Bible and defunk other, debunk other religions, go for it. That's awesome. But don't think you have to go that far. That's not what Peter is suggesting here. He's just saying have reasons to defend why you believe what you believe. But do it with gentleness and respect. In other words, don't have a here's some Jesus in your face attitude. We want to represent Christ well. And a disrespectful attitude does more damage than just keeping our mouths shut. He goes on in verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Honorable behavior maintains a good conscience. Okay, show of hands. Who likes feeling guilty? I hate it. So how do I avoid that? He tells us, honor Christ in your hearts. Be ready to defend what you believe. Have you ever been in a situation where you were able to say something to someone about your faith? Maybe it was just a short something, but you were able to say something about your faith in Jesus Christ, and you walked away, and it's almost like you felt God's hand of joy on your heart. You ever felt that? By contrast, have you ever had a moment where you could have shared, but you chose not to, and you just felt bad about it? How do we maintain a good conscience? By honoring Christ and our Lord and being ready to give a defense. If we're striving for honorable conduct, our consciences will be clear and any accusations against us will fall short. He says that they will be put to shame. That means to be silenced. They'll have nothing to say because they'll try to be accusing us and yet there's no evidence. Did any of you keep up with the Johnny Depp Amber Heard court drama? I mean, that was a joke. Amber Heard's lawyers couldn't make any of her claims stick because there was absolutely no evidence. At one time, she claimed that he hit her and broke her nose, and then they showed a picture of the next day, and there was no broken nose. Their accusations were laughable. And if you maintain honorable conduct, and I'm not saying Johnny Depp does, but if you maintain God-honoring conduct, any accusations that are directed to you will not stick. Even Jesus' accusers couldn't make their accusations stick. In Mark 14, 55, Mark writes, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony didn't agree. 
They couldn't even get it together. Did you know that Jesus' trial was illegal? They had no grounds to crucify him. And if you're doing what is honorable, nine times out of ten, your accusers will be shamed. But sometimes we still suffer. Sometimes accusations do stick even when there is no evidence. After all, Christ did go to the cross. And following Christ has its consequences. And false accusations, even if they are laughable, sometimes lead to unfair outcomes. Christians have lost their reputation. They've lost jobs. And they've even lost their lives because of being falsely accused. And what comfort do we have in a situation like that? You know, I did everything right. I was following the Lord. My conduct was honorable, and yet I'm suffering, and not just suffering, but I'm suffering unjustly. In moments like these, he gives us verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You and I may suffer at times unjustly, even though we did nothing wrong. That might even be what God wills for you, to suffer for his name's sake. And if so, suffer well. Suffer well. Suffer with your eyes on Jesus, remembering that there is a bigger plan. We don't see it. There is a bigger plan going on here, and on the back side of the plan, blessings are coming. The result of honorable conduct is a good testimony. Finally, point three, the example of honorable conduct is Jesus Christ. The example of honorable conduct is Jesus Christ. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they did not formally obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. When you read a passage like this, your eyes and your mind instantly go to verses that are confusing, verses that come with a lot of questions, and that's natural. I want to do my best to walk through this text with you But first, I want us to focus on verse 18 because that is the driving point of the paragraph. That is the point that Peter's trying to make. Look at verse 18 again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 
The example of honorable conduct is Jesus Christ. Peter just got done encouraging us to suffer well and to do what is honorable even when suffering unjustly. And then he gives us the example, the ultimate example of suffering well, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our example. You can suffer well because he suffered well. Notice the verse 18, once for sins. He suffered once for sins. Do you see that? Jesus suffered once. That's all he needed. The work on the cross was sufficient for salvation to all who would believe. In the Old Testament, you remember, the priests had to make sacrifices every single day. In fact, Hebrews 7.27 tells us, he, being Jesus, has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for their own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Christ did his work once, and it will never have to be repeated. We will celebrate his work for all eternity but he did it once. He died the righteous for the unrighteous. There's the unfairness of it. He, the righteous, suffered for us, the unrighteous, and this should remind us that Christ was totally pure. Christ was totally sinless. He never did anything deserving of death, yet he took our sins upon himself. We, the unrighteous, We, the deserving of death, we, the deserving of hell, had our unrighteousness atoned for. That was unfair. Christ was treated unfairly, yet he did it willingly. Why? That he might bring us to God. Christ is the example of honorable conduct because he endured unjust treatment for the purpose of our salvation. Jesus brings us to God. He brings us to God through giving us spiritual life in the present and by bringing us into eternity with him in the future. That he might bring us to God. The gap that existed between us and God is bridged by the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Someone say hallelujah. Man. How did he do this? The rest of verse 18. By being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. By being put to death in the flesh, you can guess what that means. It's pretty obvious. Jesus' physical body died. On the cross, he endured pain, agony, and death. But you see that little phrase, made alive in the spirit? It's a little more complicated. What exactly is it being meant? The commentators had a lot to say about that little phrase. It's too much information to unpack here, but I think I can simplify it by saying this. Jesus' body died and his spirit went on living. And that makes a lot of sense. Jesus' body died and his spirit went on living. It do, it's not saying, like the, like the verse seems to suggest, that his flesh died and then his spirit was alive. Rather, his spirit has always been alive, but his flesh died and the spirit went on living. Then what happened? Let's look at verse 19 in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, 
because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Much has been written about those two verses. I want to tell you up front, honestly, that I'm not 100% sure what this is talking about. Good, godly students of the Bible disagree over the interpretation of these verses. And I want to walk through this carefully, but let's not lose sight of Peter's point. He's talking about Christ suffering as we suffer. So let's ask three questions from these two verses. First of all, who are these spirits? Secondly, what did Christ proclaim? And thirdly, when did this happen? Who were the spirits? What did Christ proclaim? And when did this happen? Now it's important that you know that the word for spirit there can be a reference to human spirits, but it can also be a reference to angelic beings. So it could be that he's referring to human spirits here that had died. It could also mean that he's referring to angelic spirits here. We do know from elsewhere in the Bible that both human spirits and angelic beings are in pits of darkness. Jesus teaches us in Luke 6 in a parable that a man was in torment in Hades. In the same way, 2 Peter 2 and Jude 6 teach us that there are fallen angels who are imprisoned in pits of darkness. So which spirits are we talking about? Well, let's further complicate things. What did Christ proclaim? You see that in the verse? What did he proclaim? That word has also been translated preach. Again, there's a couple different theories. Did Jesus preach a salvific message to spirits of people who had died in the Old Testament times? Or did Jesus proclaim something to either human spirits or fallen angels bound in pits of darkness? Did he proclaim his victory over them? Well, let's make this even more confusing. When did this proclaiming happen? You'll notice that Noah's mentioned Was this happening during the days of Noah or did this happen after that? Did this happen when Jesus died on the cross? Based on these questions, there are five basic views. They're gonna be on the screen. I just wanna walk through them briefly. Five basic views of what's going on here. Number one, the view that when Noah was building the ark, Christ in spirit was in Noah preaching a message of repentance to those who ended up perishing in the flood. In other words, while Noah was preparing the ark, he was also proclaiming a message of repentance to the world, essentially, but no one responded. Secondly, after Christ died, he went and preached to people in hell, offering them a second chance of salvation. Thirdly, after Christ died, he went and proclaimed his triumph to people in hell, that he was victorious. Fourthly, after Christ died, he liberated certain people who had repented during the flood. They didn't make it on the ark, but they repented before they drowned, in other words. Fifthly, after Christ died, he traveled to hell and proclaimed his triumph over angels bound in chains. Now, like I said, God-honoring theologians disagree on these theories. And personally, if I'm just going to be honest with you, I've been back and forth as I've been studying this. I'll tell you what I don't think, 
and I'll tell you why. I don't think it's Jesus preaching through Noah during the time of Noah because if you read our text in 1 Peter 3, it's talking about Jesus and it seems to be talking about his spirit, not what was going on in Noah's day. I don't think that Jesus went and offered a second chance of salvation to those who had perished in the Old Testament because that doesn't jive with Hebrews 9.27 which says it's appointed for man once to die and then comes judgment. Now perhaps it's Jesus went and liberated certain people who had repented during the time of the flood but I question why just those people and not the rest of Old Testament history. So I lean to Jesus traveling to hell or Hades and proclaiming his triumph either to dead people or to imprisoned fallen angels or both. And I say that because we know both are in a place of the dead. We just talked about that. I say that also because if you look at verse 19 from our text, that word proclaim is, can be, is translated making an official announcement. So I see Jesus as making an announcement, not offering an opportunity of salvation. And finally, if you look at verse 22 of our text from 1 Peter 3, it says, talking about Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. In other words, that Jesus, after he died, proclaimed his victory to the spiritual world, and he has victory over the spiritual world and the physical world. And that seems to jive with what, uh, with what Peter has been telling us, that Christ suffered, suffered unjustly, but was blessed because he was vindicated. And in a similar way, as Christ was blessed because he endured the unjust suffering, we also will be blessed. I could be wrong. This is not a hill to die on. I believe it's what's being communicated here, but we can disagree. Let's not, however, miss the point. Christ suffered unjustly, and he was blessed. Now, I know that was a lot. It's a lot of heavy from the text. And I'm sure I didn't answer all of your questions. Not all my questions are answered. But before we move on, there's one more thing that we have to deal with. I just love it when difficult texts are compounded with difficult texts. Look at verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay. Is Peter saying that water baptism is necessary for salvation? No. That would contradict the entire message of the Bible. Salvation is by grace through faith. Ephesians 2. Salvation is by grace through faith. It's always, by the way, it has always been by grace through faith. It was by grace that God appeared to Abraham. It was by grace that Jesus came to earth. It's always been by grace through faith. That's the message of the entire Bible. For Peter to come along and say, well, you actually have to do something to be saved, would contradict the entire message. So, what's he saying? Notice in the text it says baptism, 
which corresponds to this. What's the this? It's what he's just been talking about. It's the work of Christ. The work of Christ on the cross, the work of Christ in the grave, the work of Christ in the land of the dead, the work of Christ at resurrection. That's the this. Baptism, meaning the salvific work of Jesus Christ, is what saves you. That's what he's saying. He even says, to clarify, not as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, nothing physical, no outward act can save us. And I think to give evidence to that, go to the thief on the cross, who Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. There was no time for baptism. He was dying, but he went to be with our Lord. Baptism is used here as Christ's salvific work. Christ's work cleanses you from sin and gives you a clear conscience. So just as Noah and his family were saved in an ark while God's judgment fell on the ancient world in the form of water, so are we saved through the metaphorical ark of Jesus Christ and his work. Jesus is our ark, in other words. Being immersed in the saving work of Jesus Christ clears our conscience, makes us unguilty, and frees us from the penalty of sin. Jesus took God's wrath by becoming our ark. He is our example. He is our living hope. And that, my friends, that is why you should do good in this life. That is why your conduct should be honorable because your Savior took the wrath of God meant for you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the more we understand that work that Jesus did, the more we will long to live the honorable life out of love for our Savior. Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to have a good testimony? Do you want to follow the example of Christ in all your conduct? Then let the message of what Christ did permeate your being and you'll respond with honorable conduct. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you are so good. Oh, your work on the cross, a work that none of us, no other being could have taken on but you, saves us from our sins. That he who believes in the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. You took the wrath of God. You absorbed it. That we don't have to. That it doesn't matter what kind of suffering we face in this life. We will never face the suffering that comes from the wrath of God. So thank you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus. Show us more your work. Teach us more of who you are. That our conduct may be honorable, meeting your standards. Out of love for you. I pray this in the awesome name of Jesus. Amen.